With a leaked draft opinion, along with an actual overruling of Roe versus Wade, this has been an unprecedented year for the U.S. Supreme Court. With public confidence in the court at an all-time low, many are wondering how this will affect the future of the institution. In today's episode, we will be speaking with constitutional law professor Craig Jackson to learn more about the future of abortion, as well as the future of the Supreme Court itself. Stay tuned for today's episode of Political Evolution. Welcome to Political Evolution, where we explore the past, present, and future of American politics. I am your host, Whitney Richardson, a political analyst, entrepreneur, and lawyer. Today, I'm so excited to be here with Professor Craig Jackson. He is a law professor at the Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University in Houston, Texas, my glorious alma mater. He studied at Rice University, the University of Texas School of Law, and the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. Professor Jackson has taught international law, U.S. foreign policy, as well as constitutional law. Professor Jackson, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm looking forward to uh, having our conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing. I knew you would be the perfect person for this. So it's been a few months since all of the leak and then the Dobbs ruling itself. But I kind of want to take us back to that moment in time. Can we talk about the leak of the Dobbs decision and the unprecedented nature of the leak itself? Right. You know, it was incredible. Uh, in my lifetime, I've never heard of anything like it. And several lifetimes before me, I've never heard of anything like it. Uh, something actually being leaked. I heard a rumor that the Dred Scott case was leaked privately by one of the members of the Supreme Court to uh, the uh, 15th president of the United States, preceding Abraham Lincoln. Um, but that's only a rumor, a historical rumor, apparently. And whatever happened in the older days before that, what I call the uh, knee-high stockings and wigs days. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. In the days of John Marshall. But in modern times, in modern history of the Supreme Court, that has never happened. And it's a matter of speculation as to what this was about. And there's so many motives on either side. Motives on the right to leak, to leak, to ensure that nothing changes. Motives on the left to perhaps, perhaps embarrass the right, to maybe force some changes in that opinion. And we haven't heard anything yet. And I'm not sure that there, I don't know, there's no law broken, as far as I, as I understand, of leaking a uh, Supreme Court opinion. Maybe some jobs will be, uh, will be lost. But I don't know if they're going to ever resolve or, or ever announce the results of the investigation. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get into the Dobbs decision itself in the court's reasoning. So you're a constitutional law professor, a master, but from a layperson's perspective, why did the court overrule this landmark decision? Well, I don't want to sound too cynical, but in this particular case, it really was a case of finally getting a majority of members of the court that actually don't like the abortion right. The um, argument can be made, well, they don't think the opinion, the Roe versus Wade opinion was well-reasoned. I think they'll get a lot of agreement on that. It wasn't one of the better reasoned opinions of all time. But there was a, an intervening opinion between Roe and Dobbs. That was Casey versus Planned Parenthood. 
That opinion came 20 years after, 19 years after uh, Roe versus Wade. And it made the argument that unless you have a very, very, very good reason, you don't overturn precedent or stare decisis uh, just because you don't like what the original opinion said. And one of the main reasons for not overturning is this idea of reliance. This is from the uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood decision of 1992. This idea of reliance is that you have, in 1992, perhaps two generations of women that have ordered their lives, made plans around the availability of the right to an abortion if needed. Well, since 1992, we've had two more, and some would say maybe even three generations since 1992, and women have, we're going into four to five generations of women who have planned their lives around the right to have an abortion. They plan their careers. They plan their married lives. They plan their family lives. They plan their their dreams, their goals, all around the possibility of, if necessary, having access to abortion services. Absolutely. So and when it comes down to reliance, this was, in my opinion, the key part of the Casey decision. Well, what did Justice Alito, who wrote the Dobbs decision, say about reliance? So we don't recognize social reliance. Now, I don't know what he means by social reliance. I think what he means by that is we don't recognize anything outside of contract reliance. That's an arrogant statement. I'll say it. It's an arrogant statement. The court not recognizing a reliance principle that was laid out by the Supreme Court in 1992. The court doesn't recognize social reliance. Of course it does. It did in 1992. And the idea was not to lay some kind of uh, comparison with the technical contract reliance, promissory estoppel, or anything of that sort. It was not a legal a legal principle that the justices who wrote the opinion in, in Planned Parenthood were making. It was simply a matter of social responsibility. Society had come to rely on the right to an abortion. Women had come to rely, and three more generations have come to rely on the right to an abortion, have access to it if needed, and all of a sudden, this court turns it around. And I think that was irresponsible because the only other thing that the court seemed to have in favor of overturning was the history. And the thing with history that judges, and I think Supreme Court justices in particular, don't understand, none of them are trained historians. So we are relying upon the, I guess, anecdotal understandings of times gone by on the part of the Supreme Court justices. It happens on both sides. But relying upon their understanding of anecdotal moments in history. And I don't know if they ever get a clear understanding of how, what the situations were in those days. Justice uh, Blackman, who wrote the Roe versus Wade decision, claimed to have some history that abortion was not a big deal, was not prohibited in the uh, early American period. Alito, he claims has some history that abortion was prohibited in the early American period. Now, I'm reading both his opinions, and I'm supposed to figure out who's right. But it's based upon a theory that uh, Alito adheres to that was really kind of made most prominent by the late Justice Scalia, basically about uh, called tradition, traditionalism. The idea that 
the Constitution should be interpreted based upon the mores and traditions of the framers or of the framers' time and period. It's called originalism in its technical sense. But it's basically about tradition. What was the tradition of the people at the time? It also goes into the idea that there are certain fundamental rights that are defined by, was it part of the American tradition at the time the provision of the Constitution was actually written? So there's a lot of effort to bring history into this. But I think one another way of looking at it is when you're interpreting the Constitution, what is society saying to you today? How do you interpret the Constitution being aware of the circumstances in society? Because you can take originalism and you can do very bizarre things with it because our history was not always that foresighted. So it's saying it very, very kindly. Yes. <laughs> so that's the problem with the interpretation. And that's pretty standard conservative originalism. You give due credit to a previous time. You claim to have accurate history. And then if anything gets in the way, like reliance, social reliance, you dismiss it as being irrelevant. And that's what happened in the Dobbs case. That's very interesting, especially in light. Um, I'm not sure if you've been paying attention to the court's uh, current term, but in one of the, I'm not sure, I think it was one of the affirmative action cases, uh, Justice Jackson talked about, um, you talk about the framing of history, and it seems to me that it can be used, I guess, as a tool on either side. But what was interesting to me, I had never heard she talked about like the intent of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. To paraphrase, she was pretty much saying that while there was an argument for a racial blindness, anytime that, you know, race is used in college admissions, there was actually race consciousness in the adoption of the 14th Amendment. And I had never heard that. But a lot of times we don't think about the importance that history plays in these decisions. And it really matters the intent of the person and how that can be used. Well, you're exactly right. And that was, that was probably uh, Justice Jackson's really big statement in an oral argument, the, uh, the Harvard case. The thing about the argument that she's making is that it's nothing but accurate. I mean, we just had a civil war with slavery. And then in 1868, three years after the war is over, just three years, five years ago, the Astros won the World Series. And it seems like very recent. Well, going back in the 1860s, they passed the 14th Amendment, Equal Protection Clause, three years after the Civil War that tore this country in half. And why was the Civil War fought to end slavery, yes. African slavery? Yes. So there is an argument that even though the Equal Protection Clause does have uh, egalitarian purposes, you cannot forget the original reason behind it. It was not race neutral. It was intended to fix a problem, discrimination against newly freed human beings in this country. So we can't ignore that. But I do think that a lot of, a lot of uh, present day lawyers and historians, or I should say lawyers who pretend to be historians, like to forget that that's the reason behind the 14th Amendment. Now, as far as history is concerned, constitutional law is history. 
but it's history of the law, of the Constitution. I think where we go astray as constitutional lawyers is when we try to become historians. We're great constitutional theorists, but we're not historians. And neither are historians constitutional theorists. Yes. And I've seen historians try to be, and it wasn't very pleasant. So the main point of all of this is that you have to use the expertise that you got. And what Justice Jackson was pointing to was basically constitutional history, constitutional history, which she is most apt and most expert in addressing. But on the other hand, when we have Supreme Court justices spotting off general history, I'm not so sure if I, if I totally appreciate that. Yes. And that, that's the case in a lot of areas, too, when we're trying to establish what were the original framers' intentions in terms of the fundamental rights of persons under the United States Constitution. And when you put it like that, you know, in a way that's so plain, so easy to understand, you wonder why would we use that as a standard of review in the first place, given American history? Not to say that you completely throw out the original intent, but to use that as kind of the guiding force. It just begs the question of, you know, other than if that serves your purpose, I guess, of what the legislation you're trying to pass. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the, one of the, one of the most um, interesting and, and brilliant uh, critiques of originalism was by Justice Brennan um, in a speech he gave uh, in the, in the um, 1980s, I believe it was. And I can't remember the exact language, but he essentially said, said that he felt originalism was just basically rules you make up to win your argument, and history doesn't always recognize how societies change. I wish I had that quote in front of me right now. I'd love to read it, read it to your audience uh, more accurately. But originalism, is that's how a lot of people view it, how I view it, essentially. Now, I do grant the fact that you need some kind of some kind of foundation. Uh-huh. Um, you have to have some core sense of beliefs and values in order to interpret the Constitution. Yes. The Constitution is a, a, is a, um, a creature of the 18th century, and it, it has no value if you throw it away every time you, you don't find what you're looking for in it. Yes. So you have to have some kind of foundation, certainly uh, the Civil Rights Movement, the leaders of the civil rights movement quoted from the Constitution all the time. That's our foundation. The question, though, when it comes down to history is, because it's an 18th century document, you have to let it, let go of it a little bit in that the present, because it cannot dictate circumstances in modern times. In times that the framers, who were not gods, they were just guys in, uh, in wigs, <laughs> who had an idea about um, a stable country. Never imagined in the 1780s that black people would not be slaves. Yes. Never imagined that one would become president of the United States. Never imagined a whole lot of things that we, that we live with today. But I have to take their word for what they wrote down, not imagining my circumstances or your circumstances, in articulating a workable interpretation of the Constitution. Some people call that living document approach, and it's become kind of an epithet in the discussion of constitutional law. 
and it's not really. But I don't use the term living document. I do think that there is a way to interpret the Constitution that it recognizes the, the foundations that the language lays, but at the same time, recognize that there's more to a Constitution than just specific language, the actual language itself, and the original meaning, or original intent of a group of very narrow-minded, narrow-thinking, narrowly exposed to the world in the East Coast of what is now the United States. So let's talk about the implications of overturning Roe v. Wade and what abortion protection will look like in the future. It's been a few months, again, since this decision has handed down. Congress has tried to pass a few things that have not been passed. And so I'm just curious as to what could future protections look like? I know it's turned over to the states, but could you get more into that? Yeah, I think at this point, we're going to have to rely upon the states it probably leading me up to the question of can you codify Roe versus Wade? And I, I, I don't think you can because, you know, Congress, in order to pass legislation, it has to cite to an authority in the Constitution. And one of the authorities in the Constitution that the, uh, the two bills that were written that were I call the codification bills, one of the authorizations has to do with the uh, fifth section of the 14th Amendment. It gives Congress the authority to pass legislation enforcing the rights of the 14th Amendment. And that would be the most obvious one right there, except for the fact that the right to an abortion no longer exists. So, you, so there's nothing to enforce at this moment in time. Uh, nothing to enforce. That makes sense. So you can't use, you can't use that. But, but both bills rely upon, and both, and the first bill came out in May after the leak, so everybody knew what was in it. And the second bill came out in August. Neither bill has gone anywhere outside of, I think one was a Senate, uh, one was a Senate bill. Both, I think both are Senate bills, actually. And neither of them have gone anywhere. And both of them had the, uh, the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And I'm not quite sure what's, what's happening in D.C., why that would, would come out, but that's one of the reasons. Another, another authorization that the, the bill cite to is the Commerce Clause, mm-hmm. which is a powerful clause in the Constitution. In a capitalist country, almost everything has to do with commerce. Uh, a medical procedure, such as abortion, well, you pay for it. You pay for it, uh, you go to the hospital. Money flows, uh, value flows for services. And you have to buy things from across state lines. Uh, to like gauze and, and instruments and, and anesthesia, whatever else you need to perform a, a surgical operation, you need those things, and all that, all that stuff involves commerce. Now, the problem with using the Commerce Clause is this. One problem is that the Commerce Clause has been the bane of a lot of conservative Supreme Court justices since the, well, for a very long time, but specifically since the 1990s, when the Supreme Court essentially began its process of eviscerating the use of the Commerce Clause for congressional regulatory authority. What do we mean with congressional regulatory authority? Well, I'll give you an example of how the Commerce Clause regulates matters in the basic lives of Americans. It's one that you probably remember. 
the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yes. It was essentially, you would think, what does the Commerce Clause have to do with that? Well, when you're traveling and you're black in 1963 or 62, you're going to see relatives in another part of the country. It's too far to get there in one day. You, will not, you would love to have a place to sleep and to get a meal and use the restroom. All that would cost money. But during segregation, you couldn't do those things. So Congress passed a bill, basically, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, saying that private accommodations cannot discriminate against people of color, people because of their religion, people because of other characteristics. And they asserted the authority to pass this legislation on the fact that the segregation was substantially interfering with the free flow of commerce. Because black people driving up and down the street, the freeways and highways going from East Texas to Chicago are spending money. And they decide they don't want to go through all that horror of segregation as they're trying to get to Chicago, they'll just stop traveling. And that infringes or interferes with commerce. No more restaurants. No more bottles of water. Well, they didn't have bottles of water back in the sixties, but <laughs> no, no more, no more hamburgers at the at the, uh, at the food food stand on the on the uh, side of the freeway. None of the commercial activity is going to go on. And Congress says we can do this under that, and the Supreme Court upheld it. The Supreme Court upheld that use of authority. That's how powerful the Commerce Clause is. Wow. And so the idea that the Commerce Clause was so powerful. What became the bane of conservative justices for since, I guess, since the 1960s. And finally, in the 1990s, they finally found a way to kick it back a little bit. And that was a case called Lopez versus United States. And they determined that Congress only has the authority to use the Commerce Clause to pass legislation only when they're attempting themselves to regulate an economic activity that interferes with in interstate commerce. So the question is whether or not Congress can make the argument that abortion is an economic activity. There are arguments that can be made, but you know, Congress made the argument that not buying insurance was an economic activity in the Affordable Care Act decision. And the Supreme Court did uphold the Affordable Care Act but not for the reasons that everybody else thought they were going to hold, uphold it on. The uh, Affordable Care Act was upheld on the tax clause as a matter of tax, but it was not upheld on the authorization of the Commerce Clause because not buying insurance is not an activity. It's a non-activity. So the Congress, the Supreme Court, at least the conservatives on the Supreme Court, have found a lot of novel ways to cut back on the use of the Commerce Clause. So I don't think the Commerce Clause is going to be of much help. Now, if I'm wrong about that, then I go to the other reason why it might be a problem, is that if you want to pass legislation guaranteeing the right to abortion based on the Commerce Clause, you're going to have a problem in states like Texas. Yes. Because there is no more abortion in Texas. So under the reasoning of the... Um, Affordable Care Act decision, there's nothing to regulate. Abortion in Texas today is a non-activity and can't regulate a non-activity. 
hate to be the harbinger of bad news, but I don't think that there's much, much legislatively that can be done once the Supreme Court has spoken on this issue. The decision is wrong. Let's be clear about that. Yes. It's poorly reasoned. But it is where we are right now. Shortly after this decision came out and before, there was a lot of talk, kind of pressure and starting conversations about expanding the court, expanding the court. We need to expand the court, given the 6-3 conservative majority. What does that look like? Is there any precedent for that? Is it wishful thinking? What's your take on expanding the Supreme Court? This court has been has been expanded several times in history. Um, first of all, there's nothing in the Constitution designating the size of the Supreme Court. So I think the Supreme Court has been uh, has been six members at one time, maybe five. I think the um, the number nine was achieved finally after the Civil War. I I don't think they had nine members at every point before the Civil War. But it's been nine members, except for, you know, death and and, and and recusal. It's been nine members since the Civil War. That means that for the four score and 20 years before the Civil War, it varied. So there is no constitutional reason not to add a few. That's what Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to do in 1937, the year after he was reelected to the presidency in 1936, even the Democrats found that whole idea odious, and Roosevelt was a Democrat. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't get that through. But the reason why he, he went as far as to even announce the plan, because he was getting, he was getting killed by the court uh, in, the, in his first term in terms of legislation that he and the Democratic Congress tried to um, implement to get the country out of the Depression, the uh, court didn't see anything his way, so he said, well, I'll just pack the court. And he tried. And Congress, the Democratic-controlled Congress, said no. Now, today, I think we have the same problem. I don't think that many members of, the, of Congress on either side of the aisle are convinced that you have to go around packing the court. And one, one of the reasons why that I hear often in the discussion is that if Democrats pack the court, well, then when the Republicans get in power, they'll pack the court. Mm-hmm. And every new change of administration, there will be changes of administration, and there will be changes in congressional parties that are in power. You're going to have, you have four more, and before you know it, you, you, have, to, uh, you have to hire out um, a football stadium in order to have court. <laughs> right. Because I, I could easily see in the, in the next, if we were to pack the court, add four more than this, during this administration, I could easily see the next administration or the next uh, Congress adding four more. So we're already up eight, 17 members of the court. But on the other hand, uh, you know, the, 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 between, between the leak and, 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 and the, the, um, the, the poor reasoning of these opinions that seem to be just, just opportunities that they're waiting for to have their way with the, uh, with the Constitution, Against whatever is going on with the Thomases, this rumor about a leak that the I think it was the Washington Post reported that Justice Alito allegedly leaked back in the in 2015, I think it was, in the Hobby Lobby decision. There's a lot of mess swirling around the Supreme Court these days, and John Roberts doesn't seem to be able to control it. 
And I think at some point in time, you're going to have the Congress is going to say, well, maybe not, maybe not pack the court, but maybe more oversight. Because it does seem like that when it came down to some of President uh, Trump's maneuvers after the election, for what we know about uh, his wife, Jenny Thomas's activities, Clarence Thomas probably should have recused himself in most cases, but didn't. Absolutely. Um, I, I was absolutely shook by all of that, all of her alleged involvement in the January 6th insurrection. And that brings me to uh, my last question. What does judicial oversight and self-regulation of the court look like in light of these accusations? Because that's a pretty serious accusations of Jenny Thomas and also the latest alleged Alito leak. What does that look like now? And what does that look like in the future? Regulation um, of the court? Well, I think in terms of congressional oversight, I think that's probably more likely than any other oversight measure or you know, reform measure, I should say, because I don't think you're going to see any court packing uh, in the near future. But uh, I do I do see uh, congressional oversight. We have congressional oversight and we have rules for the uh, federal judiciary up to the Supreme Court. So we have rules of recusal and rules of interest and uh, a lot of these things at the uh, district court level, at the appellate court level, but it somehow stops at the Supreme Court level. And I, I see, at the very least, a more perhaps extending the regulations of, of the lower federal courts to the Supreme Court as, an, as a measure that might, that might happen within the next few years, and uh, perhaps even long overdue. In terms of self-regulation, again, we, you know, we, 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 we don't know all that goes on uh, in, in, the, in the court we uh, we only hear what we are allowed to hear and what the what the press investigates and finds out. And I don't I don't have any great suspicion that there is any any a lot of a lot of corruption going on at the Supreme Court level. But I'd be more comfortable if I knew that there were measures in place to ensure that I can stay comfortable. That there aren't um, things that should not be going on. And the Jenny Thomas situation is one that. It's going to bear some some thought, to the very least. Yes, yes. Um, I, I I'm just curious: has there ever been like a justice removed from the court, um, or anything like that in history? I don't think so. Not not in the twentieth century, and certainly not in the twenty first century. There have been people removed from the lower courts, mm-hmm. but in terms of the Supreme Court, I don't recall any anybody being being impeached essentially. Impeached, gotcha. Um, from the court, but there have been threats. I mean, Gerald Ford when he was uh, when he was a congressperson from Michigan, he wanted to impeach Earl Warren, mm-hmm. the Chief Justice. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't happen. It didn't happen, and there were some other Im- impeachment threats of other members of the uh, Supreme Court. I'm trying to think back, but I don't think that's happened. Okay, Professor Jackson. So to close this out, we're going to do a little quick, painless lightning round. We're going to ask you (laughs) (laughs) a few easy questions to get to know more about you. So you ready? (laughs) Let's go ahead. 
All right. So number one, what's your favorite song? My favorite song. Uh, it's, it's probably uh oh boy, I got so many favorite songs. <laughs> I would probably say "What Is Hip" by Tower Power. Oh, I don't think I know that one. Great, great piece of music. Great piece of music. Gotcha. Okay, what's your favorite book? Autobiography of Malcolm X. Ah, gotcha. That's that's a lot of people's favorite, and for a great reason. Great reason. So the last question, I like to ask everyone this. Um, I think it tells a lot about the person. What's something that brings yeah, yeah, you I'm, joy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give a second <laughs> favorite book. You're a professor. In, <laughs> we'll give you the, two. The, the Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great, great second choice. You're Thank a professor. Thank you for indulging <laughs> me here. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. You read a lot. Um, so the last question, what's something that brings you joy? Oh, I think um, what brings me joy is uh, listening to good music. I like listening to jazz. The uh, song I like is more with jazz soul by Tower Power, but I really like listening to jazz, and it gives me a lot of pleasure. I love that. I was listening to jazz before um, I arrived here. I was listening to Coltrane, My Favorite Things. He has another one, Central Park West. Well, you're getting serious here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Professor Jackson, for joining me and talking through these issues. If people want to follow you on social media or your blog, where can they find you? Well, uh, my blog is, I guess, perhaps I could send you a link to that. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. And I, um, I'm going to be updating it in a few days once I get through writing all my exams. You know, I've got a lot to talk about for the past several months. Yeah. So, um but definitely, I'm happy to uh, give you that and and read my blog. It's called uh, Boisterous Thoughts and My- Modest Rants. I love and, that. And uh, that's why I just uh, gives me a chance to be boisterous in my thoughts and and modest in my rants. And my rants can be rather rather significant and drawn out at times. So you get a chance <laughs> to read all that, see what you think about it. I love that. Well, I will definitely put that in the show notes so people can read it. We definitely want to hear your thoughts with everything. Um, with this new term coming out and um, with this this new court. <laughs> and I look forward to following uh, your podcast. This is a, this is truly amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode. Before you go, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can be updated as soon as new episodes go live. I'm Whitney Richardson. This is Political Evolution, and I thank you for listening.